Welcome to the final of three podcasts on applying antimicrobial stewardship principles to the treatment of community-acquired bacterial pneumonia, or CABP, and acute bacterial skin and skin structure infections, or ABS-SSI. This discussion, entitled The Role of the Pharmacist in ABS-SSI and CABP Taking Action, was produced by ASHP Advantage and supported by an educational grant from Forest Research Institute, a subsidiary of Forest Laboratories Incorporated. It was recorded in January 2014, following the 48th ASHP Mid-Year Clinical Meeting and Exhibition. In this podcast, Neil Davis is interviewed by John Esterly, Initiative Chair. Hello, my name is John Esterly. I'm an assistant professor of pharmacy practice at Chicago State University College of Pharmacy and an infectious diseases pharmacist at Northwestern Memorial Hospital in Chicago, Illinois. I'm pleased to serve on the faculty of this educational initiative and as the initiative chair. Joining me today is Dr. Neil Davis, who is a clinical pharmacy coordinator, critical care specialist, and antibiotic stewardship co-chair at Centara Healthcare in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Welcome, Neil. Thanks, John. It's a pleasure to be here. We're very excited to further our discussion about ABSSSI and CABP in more detail. I'd like to start by discussing a little bit about the role of the new FDA recommendation for assessment of clinical response at day three when evaluating ABSSSI and CABP. John, the three-day assessment metric was implemented by the FDA in 2010, and it was really designed to demonstrate independent efficacy of the antibiotic therapy in CABP and ABSSSI patients. We know from data from the early antibiotic era, it really suggests that antibiotics have an effect on acute pneumonia symptoms within 24 hours, and we should be seeing an appropriate clinical response within the first three to four days. We also know that anywhere from 10 to 25% of these CAB patients do not have an appropriate clinical response, and almost a fourth of patients with acute bacterial skin infections experiencing a failure with the initial antibiotic regimen. So this results in, as we can imagine, additional length of stay, additional inpatient charges, as well as increased morbidity and mortality. Historically, antibiotic clinical trials designed to look at CABP and ABS-SSI, the endpoints have been assessed at end of therapy, which was usually in the seven to 10 day range, plus minus a post-assessment therapy in an additional week And these evaluation metrics really don't demonstrate the independent impact of the antibiotic separate from that of the host response to the infection. So I really think it is a positive step and a step forward that the FDA has taken and will help clinicians be able to assess antimicrobial efficacy in clinical trials moving forward. How can a pharmacist get involved to improve outcomes and decrease treatment failures in inpatient treatments of ABSSSIs? John, as pharmacists, we are in a key position to positively impact the treatment of these patients. By maintaining knowledge of local pathogen prevalence and resistance patterns, as well as staying abreast of the trends nationally in both pathogen prevalence and resistance, we can help guide clinicians to choose appropriate initial therapy. Also, by reviewing our individual patient risk factors for multidrug resistant organisms or MDROs, comorbidities, and previous antibiotic exposure, we can ensure that clinicians are choosing the most appropriate antibiotic therapy for our individual patients. In addition, you know, pharmacists can play a key role 
in utilizing our knowledge of pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic parameters to ensure that we're adequately dosing our patients. We know that obesity, as well as inadequate antimicrobial dosing, were two of the key elements that have been reported in studies with initial antibiotic failure. So staying abreast of the data with these new antimicrobials coming to the market, in addition to understanding the role that clinical guidelines play, it will allow us as pharmacists to make recommendations regarding the most cost-effective drug therapy and how to incorporate the newer antibiotics into existing armamentarians and what they actually bring to the table. We also need to be sure that we're able to provide evidence-based recommendations regarding effective therapy for all severity of skin and soft tissue infections, or ABSSI, including inpatients as well as outpatients. Thank you, Neil. Can you tell us a little bit more about the role of community-acquired methicillin-resistant staph aureus in non-purulent cellulitis? We know, John, in 2011, the IDSA um, Infectious Disease Society of America published their clinical guidelines for the treatment of methicillin-resistant staph aureus in infections in adults and children. And these guidelines really define the nomenclature of purulent cellulitis with or without the presence of an abscess and they contrasted this with non-purulent cellulitis. It's really the first time we saw this nomenclature. And it was designed, I think, especially the nomenclature of purulent cellulitis, it was designed to identify patients at high risk for community-acquired MRSA infections. As the literature demonstrates that the most common etiology of these typical, what patients have described as spider bite infections, the etiology is community-acquired MRSA most of the time, whereas non-purulent cellulitis is still dominated by beta-hemolytic streptococci, and this certainly has implications for treatment. Although this nomenclature is fairly straightforward, the diagnosis may not always be so easy, especially when significant swelling may obscure visualization of the purulent wound, such as the patient who's hospitalized. The guidelines did advocate additional coverage for community-acquired MRSA in patients who do not demonstrate an adequate response to initial beta-lactam therapy or those patients who are systemically toxic. Also, for hospitalized patients with complicated skin and skin structure infections, they continued to recommend broad-spectrum antimicrobial therapy, including therapy against MRSA, pending culture data. But they did discuss that it was reasonable strategy to start with a beta-lactam and use early addition of MRSA active therapy if the patient had a poor clinical response. I think this really speaks to the paucity of data regarding MRSA infections and non prevalent cellulitis, and it leaves clinicians room to use their clinical judgment in the treatment of significantly ill patients, especially those who require hospitalization. Unfortunately, the frequency and role of MRSA in non-purulent cellulitis still remains poorly understood, and we look forward to this as an area of opportunity for future study. Thank you, Neil. I think that clinicians will find that information very useful when helping to guide empiric therapy for ABSSSI. So shifting gears a little bit, let's talk a little bit about community-acquired bacterial pneumonia. What is the importance of looking at time to clinical stability in CABP infections? Sure, John. Outcome data in the treatment of CABP patients has demonstrated that the average time to reaching clinical stability is about four days. 
The literature also suggests that CABP patients who experience a delay in reaching clinical stability during their hospitalization have higher mortality rates as well as higher 30-day readmission rates. By monitoring this achievement of clinical stability, we can attempt to circumvent treatment failures as well as identify target patients at risk for decompensation of comorbid disease states like CHF or diabetes. Early appropriate antibiotic therapy is paramount to achievement of early clinical stability, bacterial eradication, and ultimately clinical cure. Current CMS metrics require that we utilize appropriate antibiotic therapy concordant with the guidelines within the first 24 hours. But unfortunately, they really don't look beyond that. And as pharmacists, we cannot simply stop there and check the box that our patients have gotten the correct antibiotic based on the CMS guidelines. We really have to stay involved in the care of these patients to ensure that they are achieving optimal outcomes, not only in eradication of infection and pneumonia, but also that we're managing their comorbid disease states, such as heart failure and diabetes. Thank you, Neil. As we conclude, let's talk a little bit about an issue that clinicians struggle with frequently. Why is combination therapy for ICU patients with CABP recommended even if a respiratory fluoroquinolone is selected? Absolutely. Combination therapy with a beta-lactam and a macrolide is pretty common to most of us. And we know the guidelines advocate a beta-lactam and a macrolide or a beta-lactam plus a respiratory quinolone for ICU patient to be concordant with CMS recommendations. A lot of clinicians have really questioned what is it we gain by adding a beta-lactam to quinolone therapy because these agents have demonstrated very good outcomes monotherapy. When we look at the literature, the validation of combination therapy, it has demonstrated reductions in 30-day mortality in moderate to severe disease, but not in low-severity disease. Also, in ICU patients with community-acquired pneumonia and shock or requirement of vasopressors, they did derive a lower mortality as well um, from combination therapy, reducing the odds ratio of death. Unfortunately, most of these data included a beta-lactam and a macrolide, so we don't have a lot of comparative efficacy of beta-lactam-macrolide combination versus a quinolone monotherapy or a beta-lactam-quinolone combination, and we still don't really understand the independent outcomes of these data. So from that aspect, uh, until CMS changes their recommendations, we are left with the guidelines as they are, and the data really isn't that helpful to help to um, assisting clinicians in making educated decisions at the bedside. With that, John, I would like to uh, thank you for having me today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Dr. Davis. This concludes the third interview in this three-part series on managing the treatment of CABP and ABSSSI. Explore the initiative website for additional educational offerings, including the three podcasts in this series, an on-demand webcast of the live activity presented at the 48th ASHP Mid-Year Clinical Meeting, and two e-newsletters addressing regulatory and treatment updates. Visit the initiative website at www.ashpadvantage.com forward slash ID. Thank you for your interest in this important topic.